there was not an atom in my body that wanted to open up and start writing about that. But I did it because I was solution oriented and I, I, I didn't want to stay down. At one time or another, we've all imagined a life of fortune and fame. Molly Bloom has actually lived it. In 1998, Molly was ranked third in North America as a skier on the U.S. ski team and was an Olympic hopeful. After a serious injury, Molly quit the ski team and took a year off, moving to L.A., where she became involved in a poker game that was to host some of the most famous, richest, and most powerful people in the world. Molly began running her own underground poker games in L.A. and later moved the games to New York City, where it wasn't uncommon for the hands to go into the millions of dollars. Some of these players were involved in organized crime, which eventually caught the attention of the FBI. Molly was eventually arrested by the federal authorities for her connection to the games. She would later write about these experiences in a memoir titled Molly's Game, which was published in 2014 and was adapted into a screenplay by Aaron Sorkin and became a major motion picture that was nominated for an Academy Award starring Jessica Chastain as Molly. I have had a special connection to Molly as I have been at a window seat to her life through my long-term friendship with her father, Larry. Having seen her speak before, it was an honor to connect with her voice to voice and heart to heart during our conversation. First of all, I just wanna welcome you, Molly, to The Spark. I'm so thrilled to have you here. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. I want to know more about your life, you know, quote unquote, before the movie, so to speak. Although I'm kind of using the movie here as a reference point. You know, how true to life were the home scenes in the movie for you? Um, I mean, you know, there there was, there was definitely some creative license. My dad and I had a challenging relationship when I was growing up because I didn't want to recognize any authority whatsoever. And he was a, a parent who philosophically believed in heavy-handed parenting, and you know, and it came from a, a place I think that um, was very pure of intention. He, you know, he he's a psychologist, and and he always told me, "I've seen what the world does to people, and I want to make you formidable." But his tech, you know, his tactic to get there—we were, we but you know, we were at odds a lot. And so, you know, I think I, I, I like to, I prefer to just kind of talk about the relationship that my dad and I have as it, as it relates directly to us. I can tell you that um, I believe that my dad wanted to make me formidable in the world. And I was at a place growing up where I didn't want anyone telling me what to do. So even though we were both just trying to be ourselves, I was trying to, you know, like be independent and do what I wanted to do. And he had the best intentions for me. It really resulted in a very contentious relationship. Almost. You got to keep your eyes up. Okay? Always got to look ahead. If you look down, that's where you're going to go. If you look down, that's where you go. Ready? Let's go. My father's a therapist and a psychology professor at Colorado State. No! No! 
The second rule of his house is that academic excellence no. and athletic excellence weren't optional. Can't be afraid of it, all right? Don't play defense. And the first rule was that he made all the rules. Again. Dad, I'm pretty tired. And she's tired. I've been out here since 6 o'clock. Her lips are blue. You tired? Yeah. What's another word for tired? Name a synonym for tired, and we'll get in the car. Weak. That's right. Let's go home. Again. Now, my dad's my best friend. Now, with all the connecting of the dots and the rehashing through the story, um, and, and just kind of perspective of getting older, I, I'm better for the kind of parent that my father was. But it was rough going for a while. Well, and, and having the strong personality that you have, I, I think um, it, it can kind of bump up against that, right? When you're saying, you know, dad was authoritarian and yeah, he, he wanted the very best for you, but you also had this independent spirit and you wanted to do things your way as well. Yeah. And, and I, think we were, I think we were both extremists. He was so committed and so all in on raising kids that were going to be successful in the world. And I was so committed and so all in on raising myself. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> had a lot of flexibility and there was a ton of conviction and they were uh, at odds. But again, you know, now I, I see, I see where he was coming from and, and I have a massive amount of gratitude that he kept dealing with my bratty. <laughs> <laughs> and my resistance and he didn't quit, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Well, and it, and it helped continue to form the strong woman that you are. Yeah. I mean, I certainly attribute so much to my parents, you know, growing up, you want to be nihilistic and own it all. But you know, the, the values that I have as an adult, um, which are, you know, to try to be kind and compassionate and um, to also be ambitious and strive for excellence, those come directly from the duality of my, of, of my parents and, and the way that they parented and what they cared about. Well, and, you know, the movie doesn't talk much about your mother. What, what was your relationship like with your mom growing up? You know, again, I, I was a kid that wanted to be out of the house at five, you know, so um, I saw my mother had a softer, kinder, gentler way. And sometimes I couldn't relate to her because I was just, you know, I, I was just fired up. I had a fire in me and nobody was going to speak to me. So, I mean, you know, I, I just, it was, it was on steroids. So I didn't, I don't think I appreciated the quiet strength and the goodness of my mother until I got a little past thinking that that was weakness, you know, and, and now I see her as, so strong and and such a, a guiding force in my life. But when I, you know, when I was little, like I, it, I, I wanted to burn cities. You know, I didn't want, I didn't want anything to do with the softer, kinder, gentler way. I was mad. I was fired up. I was ambitious. I was, you know, jealous of my brothers. I mean, I, you know, I was just a, I was just a hurricane. Well, and I think that that's really so true. So often that we we see some of those quieter, deeper strengths as kids, we don't understand it. We can't get perspective until we're older. And then, like you said, you can look back and see that really with, within her kindness and compassion and the different things about her, that was where her strength was lying. Yeah. I mean, when I was younger, I thought strength looked like power and 
and dominion. And now I understand that that strength comes from within and it comes from staying your ground and, and retaining your values no matter what force is in front of you. And now I see my mom as incredibly strong and powerful, but I didn't, you know, I didn't when I was a little kid. Molly grew up in a competitive family of overachievers. Her brother Jordan became a doctor in Boston, where he now specializes in cardiothoracic surgery at Massachusetts General Hospital. Her brother Jeremy Bloom became the only athlete in history to ever ski in the Winter Olympics and also be drafted into the NFL. As a skier, he was a three-time world champion, two-time Olympian, and 11-time World Cup gold medalist. He became the youngest freestyle skier in history to be inducted into the United States Skiing Hall of Fame in 2013. Jeremy is now a leading philanthropist and entrepreneur. Forbes magazine called Jeremy one of the 30 most influential people in technology under the age of 30. One of the things that, that you brought up a little bit was, you know, about your brothers. And, you know, I was the oldest in my family and I grew up with... Uh, a younger brother who was like the golden child of our family and the super achieving brother. And I oftentimes felt like the black sheep of the family too. We have a lot in common. We do. We really do. Um, so I I'm curious, you know, uh, what was, I mean, what was it like for you? You kind of touched on a little bit, but being the oldest yourself with these two younger, you know, super achieving brothers. It was hard. You know, it, it sent me out into the world with I'm going to prove myself or die kind of, you know, kind of attitude because, um, you know, I think that, I think sometimes you have different personalities in a family where like some kids are okay to just kind of, to look at their successful siblings or something and, and be happy for them and be grateful that they have their own things. That just wasn't me. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted you know, I felt invisible and I was pissed. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't, I, I didn't figure out until much later in life how to construct an identity or a foundation from within. To me, I just saw my brothers get so much applause and so much attention and so much recognition. And I felt completely devoid of it. So I went out into the world massively compensating for that and trying to sort of find that at any cost, which is, you know, <laughs> why here we are. Right. But I think sometimes that that's what happens when we have, you know, these, these quote unquote golden children um, that we're comparing ourselves to now, whether that's reality or not, whether that's just a figment of our own imagination, which, you know, later years later for me, I realized in talking to one of my very favorite aunts that like nobody else saw you as the black sheep. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's how you saw yourself. Yeah, no, we, we create all, so many times. Well, at, at least I think um, in my family and it sounds like in yours, too. That was the fiction that I was feeding myself. Well, and then that becomes our reality. When we feed ourselves the fiction, this is who I am, then we start defining ourselves by that. And then at least I can speak for myself. Then we start, you know, making decisions and things out of that place. You know, I, I could really relate with some of the things, um, you know, around not always making the best decisions coming from, you know, for a while, putting that on as my identity. Right. Yeah. Because we were seeking, you know, it, it wasn't the center of gravity was without, not within. 
After Molly retired from her skiing career, she opted out of going to law school and instead decided to move to Los Angeles, staying on a friend's couch and working as a waitress, among other jobs. She eventually found work as an assistant to a real estate investor, referred to as Dean Keith in the movie. One of her jobs became organizing his weekly underground poker game. I only had one shift a week. I didn't want to tell my parents I was a cocktail waitress, and back then I never turned down an opportunity to make more money. So I found a second job as an office assistant, and that's how I ended up working for Dean Keith. My weekly poker game is moving to the Cobra Lounge. Tomorrow night and then every Tuesday night, you'll help run it. Take these names and numbers, tell them to bring 10 grand in cash for the first buy-in. The blinds are 5,100. And Molly. Yeah. Don't fucking tell anybody. I'd regarded Dean as a nitwit when I regarded him at all. But on that pad were nine names, along with phone numbers, of some of the wealthiest and most famous people in the world. I put the numbers in my phone and composed a simple message. There'd be a game tomorrow night at the Cobra Lounge. There was a $10,000 buy-in. All nine players confirmed that they'd be there. All within 90 seconds of my sending the text. I'm curious about the first year that uh, when you hit L.A., mm-hmm. um, like I said, you know, the, my my first year and, you know, I grew up in little old Fort Collins, Colorado. I went to the Art Institute in L.A. the first year of college. I went to school. I wanted to be a fashion designer, fashion merchandiser. So were you at Fitton? What's that? Were you at Fitton? I was at uh, the Brooks Institute of Art right off, right there on the 405. Yeah. So I, I can, we can uh, definitely relate on what a culture shock Los Angeles is after growing up on the front range in Colorado. Oh my gosh. Right. I mean, it was insane. And I, I would always say, you know, I, I lived about 15 years in that one year. Yeah. We, we got really connected with a lot of people in the music scene. Um, and some producers, some different agents. And so we we got to go backstage to everything and, you know, be on stage with people. And I just thought it was like the greatest thing ever. And it's so wow. easy to get caught up in that, right? Yeah, it absolutely is. So, but what I'm curious about is, you know, here you were that first year, you're you're staying at your friend's house and working several jobs. I mean, what what was that like for you? And and I'm curious what what kept you there at that point? Well, to me, again, in my you know, dramatic early twenties. Um, my former life had just died. You know, I, I, I had to quit or I retired from my ski career. Um, and I was really questioning whether law school was the route for me. Everything was in such upheaval and I was so terrified to go back home to Colorado and just to be, you know, around my brother's success and not know who I was and not know what I was doing. And I, and I, I had always had a plan, you know, I'd always had a plan And uh, I I was so defined by my plan and the execution of it that I didn't know who I was at all. Mm. So I was certainly ripe for the chaos and the uncertainty and sort of the the culture shock of L.A. Um, It was like, I just can't go home and, and, and sit in that defeat, you know. So I think that's what primed me to have the tolerance for the crap that I had to deal with in the first job and, you know, and what, what sort of softened me to, to be so open for this weird adventure with the first poker game. Was there ever a time where you wanted to come home or were you so driven by this plan that you were like, there's no way in hell. Like going home seemed like the absolute 
last thing in the world that I wanted to do. I remember one of my girlfriends saying, um, I had a girlfriend who she and I both got into the Institute of Art in London for the next year. And I remember her saying, again, you know, these are at the time we were 19 by this point. And and she was saying, oh my God, you think we're cool now? Think how cool we're going to be then. And then to, to go from that to then going like, oh my God, now I can't go and I've got to go back to Fort Collins. You know, I mean, I, I just felt so lost and like, okay, yeah, now I don't have this big ego piece of, you know, how to define myself. Right. How do I go back? How do I go back? So I, I to- that totally makes sense Yeah. when you say that. So then you started working with the character referred to as Dean Keith in the movie <laughs> who ran the poker games and he introduced you to that world. Um, I'm just telling you, he was so easy to hate. I mean, he's like the guy you would love to hate in that movie. What was it like working for the actual quote unquote Dean Keith? And I, I just, I'm blown away thinking of how did you deal with his abusive nature? It, it was really hard. And the way that I dealt with it is he wasn't a teacher that I wanted to emulate, but I was learning a lot. And it's not like he was personally abusing or assaulting me. He was like, he, just mistakes were not allowed. So on some level, I knew I was learning a lot and I knew I was getting better. And sometimes I got to get real desperate to get better, you know, sometimes to learn, to to learn things. You know, my dad had to push me in sports a lot until I started pushing myself. And, you know, I was coming from this very sheltered world and I didn't know anything about business and I didn't know anything about the real world. And I was getting a crash course. And so there was that justification on, on, and I was, you know, meeting interesting people and yes, he was a jerk. There's no question about it. I cried way too many tears over, mm. over that, but I got really tough and I got pretty smart. So I knew that there was value, um, even though it was not in a delivery system that was kind or, or, or nice. What that reminds me of Molly, when you say that is like the book, uh, man's search for meaning and Victor Frankel. Uh-huh. Victor Frankl's book. And he talks about that. Like if our suffering has meaning, we can endure incredible things. Yeah, exactly. And, and I did feel that I was learning a lot. I mean, he, it was so hard for him to keep an employee that I was wearing a ton of different hats, having no experience, bookkeeper, executive assistant, um, accountant. Like I was, I was forced to learn things and I knew I was getting smarter and I knew I was getting sharper. Um, but, but it was, it was tough to endure for sure. And, um, I cried a lot. (laughs) Yes. And then I stopped crying, you know, and just didn't cry anymore and and didn't, it it didn't ruffle my feathers anymore. I just could take it. Well, it's almost, I imagine you became kind of desensitized to his, to his stuff, to how he spoke to you or how he acted. It was just like, no, this is my job and I'm going to compartmentalize it. And I'm going to keep just extracting all the knowledge that I can. And I do think that it's good to learn that skill to, to remain calm and not get in an emotional head when you're in business, you know, career situations. I don't think it's good to endure abuse. I'm never advocating that. And but, you know, I wouldn't advocate that someone took my path. That was just my path. That was how I got there. But there, there is something, and I, and I really do hear what you're saying with this thing with being able, though, to create, especially, I think, as a woman, um, a little bit thicker skin when we're dealing with things. And 
you know, there, there's been times in my life, whether it's a waitress at a restaurant, or oftentimes it's actually been the stewardess in an airplane where somebody's being really rude to them. And I, I, within myself, I find that I need to go, like, go talk to them and say, listen, because I can see that this person's upset or crying, you know, the, the stewardess. And I'll say, you know, you just need to know that that wasn't about you. Yeah. And I, so that's one of the things I talk about, you know, like 90% of the reason that person is being a jerk is because of what's going on inside of them. And 10% of it is the circumstance. So you don't have to own that. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like, so you were able to to get there. And and I'm curious during that time, Molly, were you able to, I mean, did you have your still, your group of friends that you had first moved in with? Did you have people you were connecting with that were supporting you through this? I've never been someone that really looks outside for a lot of support. I more recently I have, I have gotten there um, through sort of like being part of a 12 step program and it's been a game changer, but my whole life, I just got quiet and dealt with it. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't like coming home and because what everyone would say is like, you're insane. Why don't you quit? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> There's no one that's like, yeah, this is a great idea. You should be working for him. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Never. Like I just dealt with it. Right. You just keep hanging in there, girl. You're doing you're, like, you're not like, you know, getting a Nobel Peace Prize. Like you're an assistant. Who cares? Right. <laughs> right. But there was something deeper in you that knew, you know, again, I mean, you were extracting knowledge and wisdom and it was feeding you in lots of ways. Plus, of course, you know, I imagine just the excitement of being around this world that very few people have a window into. Yeah. I mean, when the poker game started, then it then it all changed. Then I didn't care what he said to me because I totally knew why I was there. But, um, but even, you know, another thing is like when you're a professional athlete or, or, you know, a very serious student, you learn that excellence comes by constructive suffering. So I've been in, in places in my life where like, I don't really like draw that line very, very well. You know, I'm like, Oh, you know, success hurts. Like this is pain. And, and that's just what you're supposed to endure. So it's been a really positive 99% of the time, but sometimes I've stayed in situations that maybe I shouldn't just because I have that tolerance for like what, you know, my dad calls constructive suffering. What, which I get it. That's what true success is born out of. Yeah. I think how many times I, in the morning, listen to things, you know, I listen to lots of different podcasts and uh, inspirational or motivational stuff. And, you know, when it comes to athletes, that's what they're always talking about is to get up and grind and get up and grind and you know, pay the price to get where you want to be. Yeah. So you, sure. you had that conditioning already. So of course, of course you stayed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you're not going to go tell somebody that's going to tell you otherwise. Right. I'm just like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Jay, you're famous. You are an international rock star. Oh, I wasn't sure you'd noticed. You can't send emails like that. Well, it's not a federal production, okay? I just invited you to Cabo for the weekend. The next woman you send an email like that to is not going to be me. It's going to be someone else. You're playing with fire. I'm telling you that I'm in love with you, and you are worried about me getting blackmailed. Oh, my God, that just makes me more into you. Lemon head. They won't need to blackmail you. They can get just as much money from TMZ. And TMZ will give them what they really Tell want. Tell me the truth. Was mine the first love letter you've gotten from a player? It was the seventh. Some of the most rich and famous men in the world were sitting around those tables. And many of them were making advances towards you. 
How, how did you keep yourself from getting romantically involved with the players? How did you separate yourself from that? Well, in the beginning, I was really disciplined and, and I also wasn't particularly interested in these guys. And, and I also had a boyfriend and, you know, I had, a, I had a boyfriend for a couple of years that was its own version of an exciting, larger than life uh, scenario. You know, it's family on the Dodgers. So I didn't, you know, that was exciting for me, I guess. But I was also, and I have always been this way until recently, I've always cared about sort of ambition and success over relationships. And and now I have a balance, you know, now that's not the case and I'm a much healthier person. But um, in the beginning, I just, I, I had my eye on the prize and, and it seemed like getting involved with the players would, would, uh, you know, would, would, would not be the right choice. Now, um, you know, the movie isn't a hundred percent true in that later in New York, I did get involved with some of the people that were in that world and it was a huge mistake and I wasn't as disciplined, but you know, for the first six years in LA, I was, I was, I was pretty, pretty good about it. And I would think you would have to be because yeah, it, it could have all fallen apart and been dangerous. And uh, one person decides that, you know, if you're involved with someone and you guys break up, then what happens then? They still want to come to the game and then you're there. I yeah. Could, it's a mess. Yeah. I could just see how messy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you know, in the movie, I was touched by the fact, and and my sense is that that you really truly were, though, you know, this caring person towards so many of these individuals that you saw just like throwing their lives away and getting so messed up in all of this, and that you actually tried to help them. Were, were there certain people, and not not about this is not about naming anybody, but were there certain people that you you just really got attached to, not as in love interests, but just as in people? I cared about all of them. Mm-hmm. But let's call a spade a spade. I didn't care more than I cared about running that game. You know, yeah. like I, if I truly cared, then I would have stopped providing the, the product. Do you know what I mean? The, the drug. Like, right. so yes, I cared. Yes, I've always cared about people, but I didn't care more than I cared about myself at that point. And like, that's part of my story that I have to own. Um, you know, now I just know that I can get blinded by my own ambition. So I have to direct my ambition at something that is aligned with purpose and, and goodness. Otherwise I can get lost. I, I proved that to myself, you know, I'm touched with just your ability just to own that. And I mean, that's, that's the transformative part right Right. there. Right. Um, and, and not, not everybody could do that, Molly, you know, to be able to just say, yeah, you know, yes, I, I am a loving, caring person and yeah, it was about me first. I can't claim altruism. I ran high stakes poker games. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Mother Teresa. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You had your habit on and you, yeah. yeah. So like, yeah, I cared about people, but it was limited and, and contained to as long as it doesn't get in the way of what I'm doing. Which I think is really true, not just in high stakes poker that you were running. I think that's true in so many businesses and, 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 the bigger that you get, I think the more evident that is. And so for people to really be mindful of that. Yeah. You have to look at what you're starting to pitch to the wayside. And again, some people, you know, constitutionally can handle it. Like I'm sure Steve Wynn sleeps pretty well and I don't think he cares, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm built differently, you know, and I, and I started not sleeping at night. So, but I kept going until, you know, Three, all the three-letter government agencies in <laughs> 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 right? Like all of them. 
DOJ, IRS, FBI, you know, it's like, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Coming up next. Right there, right then, that fast, I lost the game. It was the next Tuesday, game night. He waited until he knew I'd be on the way to the hotel and then sent me a text. It said, we're playing at Dave's tonight. No need to show up. And I knew the truth even before I answered the call that came next. We hope you're enjoying our exclusive interview with Molly Bloom, which we'll get back to in just a moment. Molly Bloom is the author of Molly's Game, From Hollywood's Elite to Wall Street's Billionaire Boys Club, My High-Stakes Adventure in the World of Underground Poker, published by HarperCollins, and is available in hardback and paperback wherever books are sold. Molly's Game is also available as an unabridged audiobook from our friends at Audible.com. Narrated by Cassandra Campbell, Molly's Game details Molly's life in her own words, from her beginnings in northern Colorado to becoming the operator of the highest stakes, most exclusive poker games in the world. Right now, as a special offer, you can get Molly's Game for free by going to thesparkpod.com molly. In addition to Molly's Game, you'll also get a 30-day free trial of Audible.com's expansive library of books that you can listen to on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. Find a book that fits you and start listening by going to thesparkpod.com slash molly. Next time on The Spark with Stephanie James. When you're depressed, you're telling yourself you're a loser, you're no good, you're hopeless, you'll never get better. And these thoughts are the actual cause of your symptoms. And, and, and we can develop powerful ways to help people change the way they think and, and therefore cha- change the way they feel. We continue our conversation with part two in a three-part series with Dr. David Burns, adjunct clinical professor emeritus of psychiatry and behavior sciences at the Stanford University School of Medicine. In addition to his research, Dr. Burns has written a number of popular books on mood and relationship problems. His best-selling book, Feeling Good, The New Mood Therapy, has sold over 4 million copies in the United States and many more worldwide. Next time on The Spark with Stephanie James. Molly's California dreams came crashing down in a single phone call at 2 a.m. from a major player, referred to in the movie as Player X, where he would announce that the game was being moved and she would no longer be a part of it. Molly would never run another game in L.A. and would never hear from Player X again. After falling into a pit of despair, Molly dug herself out and set her sights on an even bigger prize in New York City. And when you got to New York City and you developed Molly Bloom Event Planning, I don't know, was that the actual name? MDB Inc. Okay. (laughs) Nice. But it was incorporated as an event planning company and I did that in LA. Oh, okay. Okay. So that started in LA and you just took it with you to New York City. Yeah. 
Okay. That's how I was paying my taxes and that's how I was operating in that delicately legal area, you know? Yes. Yeah. Well, and you know, what I, what I was aware of is this, you know, your competitive nature came out. Like mm-hmm. when you got to New York, you know, this thing, like I'm in it to win it. Like these guys have screwed me over in LA and I'm going to go big. Yeah. This time I'm going to insulate myself. I'm not going to be replaceable. They can never leave me if I'm the bank. <laughs> exactly. <know>? Exactly. <laughs> so I'm just curious, uh, you know, even though I know the, the movie touches on it a little bit, what did it take for you to bring that business when you got to New York to fruition? I mean, I'm just so blown away with how you just took that and just blew it up. Well, it was powered by the anger of injustice, you know? Um, and, and that's something that blinding anger, that underdog spirit, that, you know, that like feeling of injustice has enabled me to do some pretty sort of incredible things. Um, but it can, it, it also has put me in this position to take it too far. So I, I, I was just so fueled. It was 2008. Wall Street was falling apart. I didn't care. I was going to New York. I was going to find Wall Street players to play five times bigger. I was going to build out. I was going to take over New York poker. I was going to scale it out to Miami and Vegas and, and, and Europe. And I was just going to do it. I didn't care. I didn't care what was going on in the world. I didn't care how many, you know, that, that it was a mob run business in New York. I didn't care that I didn't care. And I just was so singularly focused on, on executing that I did, you know, and, and, um, my, my interest now is how do I access that at any time that, that incredible focus that against all odds, you know, without the anger, without the, you know, sort of drugs to sleep at night, like how do I tap into that at any time? And that's sort of been what I've been focusing on for the last year and a half. But yeah, at that time it was fueled by anger and injustice and just that old tape, you know? Right now, you're saying your journey is how do I tap back into that fire without it engulfing me? Yeah, without being so angry and nihilistic and 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 you know isolated and and sick. Um, I've kind of figured out some cool thing, really cool things that have enabled me to to sort of access that almost any time that don't aren't born from anger and and you know that aren't that that are sustainable because that's that wasn't. right right absolutely i mean we get consumed by that kind of fire i think and it does yeah no it's consuming and it and it really um limits your ability to to see to see danger or or to stop when you know to to like limit your growth or or grow reasonably now as you're tapping into it or learning how to tap into it what what are some of the ways that you're doing that what's what are you finding is really helpful so that you can be in touch with that. Well, I think um, meditation has profoundly changed changed me constitutionally, like biochemically and cognitively, and yeah. and and removing the fear and the self doubt and being able to kind of tap into yourself in in that way has been monstrous. And being able to access it, and then you know, being part of a twelve step program, which part of the tenants are fearless moral inventory, owning your mistakes, you know, making amends for them, and then continuing to sort of to track your behavior on a daily basis so that you're running clean. Yeah. Um, You know, those two, those strategies have been insanely um, transformative 
in terms of being able to access that fire at any time, but, but, but access it in a more reasonable, sustainable way. Well, and knowing that that fire and that power, if you will, of, of who you are, it's, it's, it's always been in there. It's already in there. Always in there. That's what was so interesting to me is like, it's not like you, you went and you took some special, like limitless drug, like that's in you. That's in all of us. How do we access that at any time? Right. Not just when we're wrong, not just when we're high, not just, when, you know, whatever it is, whatever is enabling you, like, how do you access that at any time? And, and that's been a super interesting question. And, and I've been on this path of discovery and it's, it's been life changing. Well, it's so powerful, Molly, because it really is this thing I think that that so often, I mean, I know I've gotten caught up in it. I know that, you know, people get caught up in it. It's searching that power or it's searching for that happiness or whatever that fix is, quote unquote, fix is outside of ourselves. Right. And right. thinking that that's where we're going to find it and that's how we can own it. And that it literally is, you know, this place where we go internally inside of ourselves. It's actually this quiet place where then we can actually really access. And it feels like this incredible new new world you know yeah this this is what makes it um the journey it gives all this journey so much depth and meaning yeah and so like also now i get to go around speaking publicly and and giving keynotes and commencements and stuff and i get to share this message you know i get to share my experience around it and the message and the solution or a solution you know and and so that that is just an, it's been an amazingly cathartic experience because it helps with the, the self-forgiveness of it all, you know, like, well, maybe all my craziness can maybe help someone else. So there was a reason. Absolutely. I, I and I do think that sometimes it, it is our greatest gifts are through our own suffering and through you know those places of our deepest pain, then we're able to share with other people. And as I've listened to you speak, those messages, you know, just really come through. And that's why you have such a powerful story because you've, you've kind of been through these darkest trenches and, and you've come out the other side so much more illuminated and you're sharing that gift with so many people. Yeah. It's a pretty exciting, um, you know, it's an exciting new chapter for sure. Word spread quickly about the popularity of Molly's games. So much so that the Italian Mafia wanted a piece of the action in exchange for their services of protection. When Molly refused their services, one of them showed up in a much different, much more lethal way. You know, the hardest scene for me in the movie, of course, was when this Italian mobster shows up at your door. And I, I know I've already heard, you know, that that really that scene really happens where you know he takes your money and jewelry, threatens your family, yeah. beats the crap out of you, sticks a gun in your mouth. Yeah. Uh, sorry, you're in the wrong. <laughs> Wait, okay. hold on a second. I have. <laughs> Not a sound. Come on. Open your mouth. Open your mouth. It wasn't an offer they made. It wasn't a suggestion. This will be your only reminder. Your mother lives alone in Telluride, Colorado. Right? <coughs> right? Right, Molly? She doesn't live there anymore. I see that. <laughs>
you know, how did you deal with that trauma after the fact? Um, well, it, it, it was, that was definitely the darkest time in my life. And it wasn't just because of what had happened. It was more because I became so aware of the darkness inside me because I who would have expected someone to that, that was a wrap, you know, yeah. like leave the world, leave that world. But like, I was not leaving, you know, I, I wasn't going to tell anyone I was going to figure it out. I needed to still run games. I had $3 million on the street. I had a million reasons. And there's this awareness now that like, there's not only enemies without the enemy is within. And that's the most chilling mm-hmm. dark place that I think you can be. Um, and that, Literally, I was putting money, greed, power, success over life and liberty. Um, and and I had I had no more control. I, I was out of control. I was my life was unmanageable. All I had was this thing. I was on, you know, this train was coming off the track. It was derailing. It was a slow motion, you know, like accident. And I just couldn't get off. And it was a total like disconnection, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it was like you became a slave to the game. Yeah. Total powerlessness. Oh my God. I know you, you dealt with it by yourself since then. Um, I mean, how have you dealt with it now? Did you ever, you know, I, I guess I'm, it's interesting to me because I'm a trauma specialist. Okay. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I'm like, how have you dealt with yeah. that degree of trauma and, you know, keep it from being a fear that, you know, some guy's going to show up on your doorstep again? Um, well, I mean, a couple things. I did some EMDR. That's what I'm certified in. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, I did some EMDR, um, two stints in rehab, which is a lot of, a lot of therapy, um, working some 12 steps. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think writing the book, and then working with Aaron Sorkin for eight months, telling the story in, in intimate detail. I think there was a lot of catharsis in that. Meditation, too. Meditation allows you to go to those places that you don't want to look at and look at it and, and sit there with the uncomfortableness of it and the fear of it. And, and then, you know, just kind of work through it, walk through that. Which is such a powerful process. It's like instead of continuing to shove it down or to avoid it, mm-hmm. it's like you make room for it. Yeah. And like, you know, I started writing that book right after all this stuff happened. So it was so super fresh. I didn't want to, there was not an atom in my body that wanted to open up and start writing about that, but I did it because I was solution oriented and I, I I didn't want to stay down. And, and then, you know, after like spending two years writing that book, rewriting all these stories, rehashing it, then I went almost right into, you know, a case where my attorney and I rehashed, 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 because he had to, you know, build the case or whatever. And then right after that, it was interrogation by Aaron Sorkin for eight months. So like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> to spend, you know, sort of like processing in these like uncharacteristic ways. But I think that just, I think that, you know, I just regurgitated it out of me. Well, it's like life presented you with all this, you know, interestingly, you know, opportunity to do that. I mean, to, to continue to process, process, process on, I imagine all these different levels until you really can start to come to peace with the story, with your story, with your experience. Yeah. You know, I think like if I would have just done what I wanted to do, which was run away from it, it it would have 
rocked me for a long time, you know, but instead I just kept walking into these scenarios because I was so determined to not stay hopeless and helpless, you know, and, and it just, the different ways of, of fighting back were writing, you know, <laughs> coming up with a defense for a lawsuit and then, or the defense for, you know, getting federally indicted and then the movie. So I just kept walking into it for like, you know, six years. And I think that that was probably, probably gave me a lot of perspective and a, and a lot of peace around it. Federal authorities organized the largest mob roundup in New York history. This potentially saved Molly's life at the time. However, it also became the catalyst for her arrest by the FBI for her connection to the mob through her poker games. They seized $4 million of her money and she was facing 10 years in prison. The government wanted to know what information Molly had on the players and their associates. Molly refused to provide detrimental information that would harm the lives and families of the other players who were not connected to the mob. Instead, she chose to admit her part in taking a percentage of the pot in her games in New York, which was the only illegal act she committed. You gotta let me keep you out of prison. You've seen what's on those hard drives. Yeah. yeah. It's a lot more than a little color. Yeah, but complete immunity. Right, you get all your money back. You'll be the first defendant to walk out of a courtroom better off than when you walked in. Careers will be ruined. Families, wives, lives hey, on you know, both when, coasts. When a rich guy goes to jail, he spreads his money around. His, his lawyer knows how to take care of that. He spreads his money around. You don't have any. The composition of female inmates in a federal prison, they did not commit financial crimes. They're drug dealers. They get raped by prison guards. You. You will not be anonymous, Molly. You will be a target. Children will read their father's text messages saying he wished he'd never had kids. These guys... These guys, where are they? Why are you in this alone? Where are your friends? Where is the one guy saying, hey, you know, Molly, I know you're doing everything to save my life. What can I do for you? Let me buy you a sandwich. Where are they, Molly? You kept their secrets. Where are the people you're protecting by not telling the whole story in the book? by sending in the Brad Marion suit, by not taking $5 million of your own money, by going to jail. Where did everybody go? It's not their names. I'm protecting Charlie. It's mine. Oh, that's great. Well, we don't have the luxury of integrity. You have to take the deal. No. You stay out of jail. You get your money back. You pay your debts. You start a new life. Is this self-imposed punishment for naming four guys in a book? It's not. You didn't do anything wrong. I was named after my great-grandmother. I don't care. Molly. We Dublin will stay Bloom here all night until you understand. Until you understand nobody gives a shit about your good name. I do. Why? Because. Why? Because. Tell me why. Because it's all I have left. Because it's my name. And I'll never have another. When the FBI did get involved and arrested you, mm -hmm. you know, and took $5 million of yours, wanted you to give up the other names of the players um, in order to give your money back, you know, it took an incredible amount of integrity to not give up those names. Yeah. You know, and so even when, even when you may not have been at your best, at, at that point, were you two years sober? No, I was no, I was not, I, I wasn't sober at all. Okay. So they okay. took my assets in 2011, and then I went to rehab. Um, okay. So I was like maybe 28 days sober. You know, 
when I actually had to deal with it. But, um, but then I get, you know, I, I, I guess, I don't know. It seemed like a life sentence to tell on, to stand on the backs of people that I had roped into this gambling enterprise and to, you know, throw them under the bus and, and their wives and their kids or whatever. Like that seemed like a life sentence, you know, uh, the money I've always believed that I can make money again. Um, and it, it was harder the second time when it was, when it was jail time. I'll tell you that. I mean, the, oh, yeah. the money was easy in comparison to that and money wasn't easy, but, um, I just believed that doing that was so contrary to who I was that I, I, I didn't think I would, I would walk away from that ever. I thought I would walk, walk the earth, like in a prison of my own making, you know? Absolutely. I mean, when you say it was a life sentence, I mean, that, that was it. You would have carried that forever. There's, in there's your soul no forever. Yeah. How do you, how do you reconcile that? You can make again, if I had to do some jail time, it was, I was not going to be happy, but there was, it wasn't like I was looking at life sentence, right? It was like going to be a couple of years. And, um, and the other just seemed like a life sentence. So, I mean, that, that's the power in this as well, is that, you know, here was this really, you know, immoral quote unquote world and you had profound morality and integrity by has their line in the sand somewhere mine may be left of some people's but you know (laughs) my heart stop is my heart stop and and i don't think that you can discount that either regardless of where you were at that point in your life i mean you didn't sell your soul yeah yeah well i had sold pieces of it and i didn't want to you know, I didn't want to forego. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you didn't want to bottom out. You wanted to hold those. Yeah. Yeah, I was like hanging on by a string. <laughs> yeah, I would hold on to what you had left for sure. Yeah. So, what when I have uh, seen you speak, you know, you talk about the meaning of success and and what really matters to you now. And you touched on that a little bit. What what are the definitions of success for you today? Well, I, you know, I've lived. Um, I have had some moments in in the past, however many years, where even though I held on to my integrity, I have felt very devoid of dignity, right? Because I'm like back mm-hmm. living with my mom, and I don't have a bank account, and I and I never want to be there again. So financial independence is massively important to me, um, but I don't care about amassing a large fortune. You know, it's not a materialistic thing. It's it's a it's a human dignity thing care about being successful. I am someone that wants to be able to be aspiring towards a goal and wanted to get and want to and want to give it my all. But I care more now about the relationships I have in the world about being a good daughter, a good sister, a good girlfriend, you know, a, a good friend, like relationships I put on the back burner for so many years, and I don't do that anymore. Um, I am always going to be ambitious, but this time I know because I have the self-awareness now of how easily I can get lost because ambition is like a drug for me that I know that I have to channel it towards something that has meaning and purpose. And I have this opportunity right now, you know, I have a platform and I, I, you know, I'm working on a second book, which is memoir attached to solution, you know? So it's like my life since the sentencing and, and, and that path with trauma and, and, you know, all these things that I've confronted since then and making a movie in Hollywood and New York publishing and everything, but with, with real solution takeaways, you know? So, um, and, and speaking, and then, you know, my, my grander plan and, and right now I'm, I get to be in that observational phase where I'm learning how I think this all comes together is 
to create platforms or, or community. Cause I've seen through a 12 step program, how much power is, is derived from um, creating community around shared experience is creating communities for women that help support each other, lift each other up and, and can, you know, unify for greater causes. So it's a broad construct, but, but I'm getting in the world and seeing like how, what that looks like. Does it look like a social network? Does it look like a co-working space? Does it look like social clubs? But that's really where I'm going with it. And I have this awesome opportunity where I can make money by like being, you know, being purposeful. And, and so I just, I couldn't be more grateful at this point in my life. Well, and is this the uh, full bloom? Is that what it was? Yeah. This is the foundation. Yeah, this is the foundation. But you know, like in the poker world, or when I when I knew I wanted to publish, or when I knew I wanted to, you know, pitch my story to Hollywood, I, I, I've always taken that time to learn. You know, first I watched, I observed that poker game for six to eight months. I took a hundred meetings in Hollywood before I, you know, before I pitched Aaron Sorkin. I'm a, I like to be able to learn and to observe, and so I get to be in that world right now where I'm speaking to people, I'm giving commencements, I'm you know, I'm writing op-eds and just kind of figure out what the entry, where, where the entry point is in, you know, cause my career path, like I was in an underground world and then I was in an isolated world being an author or, you know, like just working directly with Aaron. So now I'm back in the world again. And to think about creating communities, I need to be a learner again. Yeah. Yeah. In, in discovering how, how you do that. And, and so you're doing a lot of observation and it sounds like through the 12 step programs, absolutely. Yeah. You've yeah. seen that in working order. Same model for, for, you know, for organizing around causes. It's really powerful for me to see where you're at right now and you bringing this peace and balance to your life. I have seen a lot of amazing things in my life. I have never seen something more incredible than the transformation people undergo when, you know, when working, when really authentically working 12 steps, it's, it, it, it is the biggest miracle I've ever seen. And knowing that you're really committed to that process and that you're continuing to do that, it, it, that's the greatest gift, Molly, that you give yourself and that you give your family and, and truly that you're blessing the rest of the world with. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's been the most incredible thing in my life. <sighs> okay. I'm going to not be emotional here. <laughs> um kind of wrapping up though the last part of the movie Mm -hmm. there's a scene where you're ice skating and your dad shows up and he does this three years of therapy in three minutes listen it's not a big deal but from what i saw out there i think you're having a small break that's weird can't think of why probably because of the arrest and not knowing what's going to happen next old man do you really not recognize sarcasm (laughs) do you and for the record, your father raised three kids on a college professor's salary. One of them is a two-time Olympian, a six-round draft pick of the Philadelphia Eagles and a leading philanthropist. The other is a cardiothoracic surgeon at Mass General. And the third managed to build a multi-million dollar business using not much more than her wits. I'm about to plead guilty in federal court. Well, nobody's perfect. Point is, I did a few things right. Did, it, did that scene really happen? So uh, a version of that scene happened. It happened in LA and we legitimately hadn't spoken for a year. Um, when I got arrested by the FBI, he was pissed, which is understandable now that I think about it because he had been, you know, kind of 
having little interventions with me, writing me heartfelt letters for years telling me that he was concerned, that, that this was not sustainable. And I didn't listen. And so when I called him and said, I just got arrested by the FBI, he's pissed. He's like, get a public defender, you know? And and that was the anger talking. And, and I got mad at him for being mad at me. But what happened is, and so I didn't speak to him for a year. And then finally he called me and said, you know, you're about to get sentenced in federal court and I am coming to talk to you. Where are you? Mm-hmm. It was in, mm-hmm. you know, we, we did it on the beach in Malibu. Staying with a friend, and um, it, it was you know, look, it wasn't an Aaron Sorkin script, but it was very powerful. Did it was it the marker? Do you feel like that changed your relationship with your dad? No question. We were both finally ready to come to the table, you know. Well, and I imagine you know his anger was was truly what was underneath that. It was his fear. Yeah. You know, you heard the anger, but you know, this is a man that adored his daughter. Yeah. Whether he was able to express it in the ways that you could, you know, really receive that or not. Right. Or that he was able to accurately or not express that um, from someone that got to experience it from the sidelines. I, I just, I, I can think about so many conversations I've had with your father and. My daughter. Um, <laughs> oh my God, my daughter. <laughs> what is wrong with her? Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, just having that, you know. I remember when the book was coming out and he was so excited for you. Yeah. You know, and you could just see that it's always, it was always interesting to me too. When I'd hear from people around the community, my mom owned a business here in town and knew everybody. And I couldn't go to old town in Fort Collins without running into someone that, that knew me (laughs) or knew my mom as a kid. Yeah. I mean, knew me as a kid or knew my mother. And um, they would just say, Oh, your mom speaks so wonderfully about you. And it was always such a mystery to me. I'd be like, really? Yeah. Really? Because I'm pretty sure she thinks I'm a little shit. So, yeah. you, you know, it's it's interesting to me because I think, you know, as kids, we don't have that perspective yeah. or as young adults. Yeah, for sure. You know, of how our, of our parents truly feel about us or how they speak to us about other people. So, so I, I know your dad, I mean, of course, he's concerned about you. He loves you. He's, you know, he's being angry to you out of fear. Mm-hmm. And then you have this moment in Malibu. What What's happened since then? I mean... He's my best friend. I speak to him like three times a day. He's probably sick of me. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Um, I call him for like every, you know, like, I mean, my dad is my best friend. Hmm. Hmm. We, you know, we, there was always love there. It, it was just, um, sometimes life gets messy and we, you know, we really, we really did real work on, on both owning our parts in it and moving forward. And so now what's left is just the loves and, and it's, it's incredible. You know, I was uh, with your dad eating lunch a couple of weeks ago and in the middle of our lunch, you had just gotten off the stage from delivering a keynote to 5,000 people <laughs> and you got a standing ovation and you were just giddy <laughs> And, and he's like, oh my gosh, he's like, I got to call my daughter. Is that okay? I'm like, of course that's okay. This is huge. (laughs) Yeah. He's, he's an awesome coach. You know, I used to be like, dad, leave me alone. Now I'm like, dad, I need to talk to you before, after. (laughs) Well, it's cool because, you know, I think he was your cheerleader from way in the sidelines sometimes. And now he gets to be full frontal with you. Yeah. No, it's, it's. It's all really special. Like I said, I, I just have, I mean, I'm just like 
I'm in pinch myself gratitude most days. Well, your journey has been so amazing. Um, you've just lived this incredible life. You know, just not everyone can say they've lived this life, even without, you know, the things that that you went through in in LA or New York. I mean, already just with your skiing and the tenacity of who you are, this driven woman. But you know, here you are. Your life became this national best-selling book, and then a major motion picture. What has that been like for you to see your life kind of out there and, and um, you know, up on the screen and, and people talking to you? And what, what has that been like? I don't know. It's kind of hard to explain. It, it, it's certainly been strange at times. I, I, I'm super grateful. But I think because, you know, in between the Oscars, in between all these events and everything, like I come home to Colorado and I hang out with my grandma who like really has no idea about anything that's going on or like my family or, or my boyfriend or my friends. And, and I'm just like, you know, everyone's just normal. Like the people that are in my life now know me for me. It's not, it's not, it's not about that other stuff. So I return to this normalcy and I return to this place where I'm living life on life's terms in, in a real way. So it just sort of feels like, um, this thing that's completely happening outside that it's not a, not on a daily basis. You know, it's not like I get recognized on the streets or anything like that. So it was just, you know, I've had some really exciting, surreal, crazy moments, but I always now return to, to realness. So it's, I guess it's the best of both worlds, you know? Absolutely. And, and that there's a sense of you can tap into this other life a little bit, but you stay grounded yeah. and centered in what your day-to-day, quote-unquote, real life is about. Yeah, because the people that are in my life now are grounded. You know, it's not, and, and it, it's not like my previous life where everybody is chasing shiny things and, you know, trying to live life in, in these big, crazy moments. Like, that's not what the construct of my life anymore. Thank God. And so, um, you know, I just feel like, I feel like a pretty normal person that had a crazy job for a while, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. That, that had this incredible, you know, kind of extraordinary life. Um, but I, I do agree, you know, there's this thing, there's this saying that, you know, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Have you ever heard that phrase? Um, no. I, that is, that's good news. Now it would have been terrible news. A couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Oh but I, I'm, I'm okay with that stat now. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's so powerful when you think about it. I think that it's really important because what you're telling me is the five people that you spend the most time with are the people that are really nurturing your soul and also are very grounded. And so it, you continue to remain in that space. Yeah, exactly. What does the next chapter of your life hold for you, Molly, now? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I've, I just, I, I've done a lot of work to be in the present. Um, I know what I care about. Um, and I care about, again, being successful. I care about the, I care about the, the relationships in my life and I care about doing purposeful work. Um, and so However, that takes shape. I'm not really sure, but um, but but I know the major themes, and I'm not willing this time to deviate from them. I've been an accidental entrepreneur in my life. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't, I was never going to come up with Google or Amazon, but I just know that when I show up for life and I try to and I make my goal to be like 
the nicest, most hardest working person in the room, things happen, you know, opportunities come. And so that's just kind of what I'm trying to do. Well, and it's a beautiful message to give to, to the listeners, you know, and the people in, that are, uh, that are following your story, because I think that's what we all have to do in our lives is show up for ourselves and be true to our inner selves. And like you, the work that you've been doing, getting in touch with your inner self. And as we do that, then we're able to gift the world. We can show up as the best version of ourselves. Right. Exactly. And, you know, there's definitely magic in in the uncertainty. And and as long as you're like coming with pure intentions and you're running clean and you're, you know, really like taking care of yourself and others, I think that there's, I think it's, you know, good things happen. There are themes throughout my conversations with Molly, strength, tenacity, igniting what brings us passion without letting that fire consume us. How can we access these things at any time without getting carried away by the many temptations and currents of life? I think when we are constantly trying to get that fix outside of ourselves, this can happen. When we try to get this fix through food, gambling, sex, shopping, or even over-exercising, Any of these things are not in and of themselves bad. It's when we are using these outer things to change our inner state. We can get lost and feel even more helpless and empty. Molly's journey is one into the fires of all those outer things we think will bring us fulfillment and happiness. But at the end of that part of her journey, she found her true happiness was within. Deep friendships, family, meditation, and being connected to a supportive 12-step community have been game changers in Molly's life and where she has found true peace and harmony. We can be fearless and believe in our dreams. We can begin our own inner journeys to our best selves right here and right now. We can let go and transcend our pasts and move more fully into our futures. Our past decisions don't have to define us, and we don't have to be held prisoner to our past circumstances. Molly has shown us through her amazing story how we can continue to reinvent ourselves and that the best chapters of our lives actually lie ahead of us. Remember, The Spark is your show too. If you have questions, feedback on the show, or if you're going through something and need a little help, we'd love to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us at our website, thesparkpod.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. New episodes of The Spark air Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain, and podcast episodes are released the same day. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional and should not be considered medical advice. If you're having a mental or physical health crisis, please seek treatment immediately. The Spark is produced by NOCO Media Limited, which is solely responsible for its content. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life. I'm Stephanie James.